to Bard Flies, a podcast about why geopolitical conflict and bad breakups should never mix. This week, Shakespeare offers his take on one of the few works of literature more famous than his own, as Troilus and Cressida, yes, that is the title, as well as the names of the two people who are at the center of the play, navigate the climactic events of the Trojan War. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is episode 25, The Trojan Whores. Oh, and that sounds heroic to you, doesn't it? To die fighting. Tell me, little brother, have you ever killed a man? No. Ever seen a man die in combat? No. I've killed men, and I've heard them dying, and I've watched them dying, and there's nothing glorious about it. Nothing poetic. You say you want to die for love, but you know nothing about dying, and you know nothing about love. All the same, I go with her. I won't ask you to fight my war. You already have. But Troy! Will, would you be so kind as to give us a plot summary of Troilus and Cressida? Troilus and Cressida open seven years into the Trojan War, with two armies staring one another down outside a walled city. Faithful readers of high school summer assignments and mythology will recall that the war began when the besotted Trojan prince Paris made off with the equally besotted Helen, the wife of King Menelaus of Sparta inspiring the Greeks to cross the waves to avenge Menelaus's honor and retrieve his better half. I don't think she's that much better, at least as presented in this play. Will. It's quite arguable, uh, mostly leaning towards the negative, I think, in this case. The war is not going well for either side amid rising casualties, but it is particularly dreadful for the Greeks. Their finest warrior, the legendary Achilles, is huffily refusing to fight, a situation that the overall king of the Greeks, Agamemnon, as well as his friends and advisors, King Nestor and the wily king Odysseus, or Ulysses as he's called here, are trying to remedy as they face off against the valiant Trojan prince Hector, the scion of the Trojan royal family. Within the walls of Troy, however, it's the battle of the sexes that holds the greatest purchase on the heart and imagination of Prince Troilus, Paris and Hector's youngest brother, and a true romantic. Troilus yearns for the hand of the noble woman Cressida, and is working with her uncle, Pandarus, to woo her, but has had little success thus far and has stayed away from the front during this whole process. This quickly changes when the Trojan warriors return with a wounded Paris and a battered Hector who lost a skirmish to the brutish and singularly stupid Ajax. As they return, Pandarus sees an opportunity to promote Troilus to Cressida, telling her that Troilus is in fact the noblest of them all. Though he need not worry, Cressida admits to the audience, after everyone else leaves the stage, that she is in fact in love with Troilus as well, but merely playing hard to get. Meanwhile, King Agamemnon is desperate to overcome the Greeks' failures to breach the city. Ulysses tells him that this is not due to any failures on the Greeks' part on the battlefield, but rather due to a lack of respect for order and degree within the army. Achilles' refusal to fight has led others to sit out combat as well, including his friend and possible lover Patroclus. Meanwhile, others, like Ajax and Thersites, a sarcastic slave, are similarly cynical and embittered over the war. In the midst of all of this, the Trojan commander Aeneas arrives with a message. Hector will fight any Greek noble in single combat with their wives' honor at stake. 
Ulysses knows that only Achilles can overcome Hector in battle, but fears that if Achilles were to lose, the entire army would fall apart. So he, Agamemnon, and Nestor conspire for Ajax to fight instead, since if Ajax loses, they can always possibly claim that Achilles would have won had he been chosen, and that the whole episode might spur the vainglorious and jealous Achilles to rejoin the fight with renewed vigor. Back in Troy, King Priam and most of his family are exhausted from having to fight a prolonged and costly war due to the rash actions and lust of the unrepentant Paris, which Princess Cassandra prophecies will lead the city to ruin unless they cast the singularly unpleasant Helen out. Troilus, white knights for Helen, offering an extended argument that this is really about the city's honor and true love, but Hector, a family man, isn't having it and chastises his romantic younger brothers. At a dinner later that evening, Pandarus finally brokers a chance for Troilus and Cressida to talk, and they declare their love to one another, pledge never to betray one another, and spend the night together. But Cressida's father is defected to the Greeks and has plans to spoil all the fun. He suggests to Agamemnon that they exchange a captured Trojan general for Cressida so he can see his daughter again. Agamemnon agrees and tasks the Greek commander Diomedes with overseeing the exchange, while Ulysses schemes for the other Greeks to throw shade on Achilles' valor by refusing to acknowledge them as they march by his tent. Surprisingly, this works pretty well. Achilles asks Ulysses why this is happening to him, and Ulysses reminds him that sitting out the war is damaging his reputation, and therefore he needs to restore it by fighting. For his part, Thersides laments the stupidity of war in general and continues to heap abuse on Achilles, Patroclus, and pretty much everyone. Diomedes arrives in Troy to take Cressida away, casting a pall on the lovebirds and leading to many pledges of loyalty and eternal love between Cressida and Troilus. Diomedes and Cressida return to the Greek camp where Cressida is kissed by all of the senior commanders in the camp at Ulysses' suggestion, which is pretty gross. Uh, Ulysses himself refuses to partake and comments that Cressida must be a loose woman to act that way. Really uh, great look for Ulysses here. It's, it's, it's you know, he's... Um, he is not an honorable man. Uh, if you could see the uh, look on both of our faces, no doubt. There's arched eyebrows. There's a general look of disgust and disdain. To make matters worse, Cressida is secretly tailed by Troilus, who witnesses her, responding favorably to Diomedes' entreaties. And therefore, he returns heartbroken to the city to prepare for combat against the Greeks. The next day in the big battle, Hector kills Patroclus. This spurs Achilles to fight. Wandering the battlefield with his men, he comes across Hector, who has just laid aside his weapons and armor. Hector requests mercy since he is unarmed, but Achilles unceremoniously instructs his men to kill him. The play ends with Pandarus lamenting the state of the world and the fact that nobody returns his phone calls anymore. <laughs> the love of a young couple that he had worked for and regular people alike simply gets crushed by the exigencies of war and politics, he laments. Ooh. Well, I'm really glad I poured myself a, uh, a, a tumbler full of rye whiskey before we started recording this, because uh, this is grim. It's not for the faint of heart, this one. I think that the plot is tortuous and complicated, but more than that, there's just there's a lot going on here, and it's uh, it's doesn't go down terribly smoothly. I have to say, 
But on that note, let me ask you something. We have Troilus and Cressida, and we have their little love story, but very little time is actually spent on them in the bulk of this play. Is there a connection between the broader story of this war and the effort to get Achilles off his butt and into the fight to Cressida and Troilus's love affair? And if so, what is the connection? I feel like there are thematic connections that suggest themselves, but I struggle to really be able to articulate a reason that any of those ideas are present in this play. Like, I, I think it's possible to think of ways in which it connects, but harder to argue that the connection is, is real. So, you, you know, I, I think I think you could make an argument about the idea that the play is making a point about how war interrupts and diverts the normal course or the proper course of a relationship, right? And that the love of Troilus and Cressida is another victim of the war. And, and so, therefore, it's thematically connected to some of the other things that the play is talking about. I'm... So, I, I guess let me divide this into two things, right? I think, on the one hand, there is some interesting stuff to talk about in the context of the relationship between Troilus and Cressida and what happens between them. But that to me is a little bit different from the other question, which is how does the story of Troilus and Cressida fit into this play, which really seems like it's Shakespeare's take on the Trojan War featuring a side plot or a B plot of Troilus and Cressida. Mm -hmm. I mean, does mm -hmm. that, how do you react to that? Does that feel yeah, I mean, true or? I, I think that the main plot which is due to a singularly rash act by Paris taking Helen, not so much against her will, off to Troy. Uh, so it's an instance of a war that's caused by love and bad decisions and Aphrodite's arrow, uh, you know, hitting Paris or whatever. So it's a war that's caused by that. And there's much commentary on how it's not really worth it. They've been doing it for seven years. It's been terrible. But wrapped up in that is the story of Troilus and Cressida, which I think is meant to replicate aspects of the Helen and Paris relationship, mm -hmm. but is also meant to sort of underscore the real futility of it in practice. And I think you sort of see that where there's so much cynical counterpoint to all of the odes of love and sincere and devout promises of affection and, you know, eternal, eternal, like, trust and purity. I mean, like, what actually happens, right? Cressida gets more or less sold into, I mean, I wouldn't say she's sold into sexual slavery per se, but... She's put into, at the very least, she's put into a very dangerous position, right? Yes, yes. But so even this, Will, even this point that you're making... I feel like to make the point is sort of to read between the lines. Uh, you know, this was my reaction reading that scene with Diomedes. If you read what Cressida says in the moment when she essentially gives in to Diomedes' advances, right? I think basically Diomedes is trying to get her to invite him over to her tent later that night. Right. And it ends with her saying, yeah, okay, you can come over. And then she says... Troilus, farewell, one eye yet looks on thee, but with my heart the other doth see. 
Sorry, but with my heart, the other eye doth see. Oh, poor our sex, this fault in us I find. The error of our eye directs our mind. What error leads must err. Oh, then conclude, mind swayed by eyes are full of turpitude. I agree with you that the circumstance lends itself to the reading that you're saying, but I don't think that Shakespeare's text suggests that that's his idea of what's happening, right? It seems like the angle that Shakespeare seems to be putting forward is the angle of Cressida's very fickle. And I think that that matches up with some of the foreshadowing in the earlier scene where they're talking about how their love is going to redound for generations and be famous. And he's saying, I'm going to be a model for true love. And then she says, if I'm false, then let me be a model for, for shamed women, right? It feels to me like the reading we're supposed to take away is that Cressida is just false and fickle and, you know, and, and, tr and transfers her affections to Diomedes on a dime. I agree with you that the situation lends itself to the reading that you're suggesting, but I, I, I just don't see it in the text. So I guess here's where I'd push back just a little bit on this, which is the portrayal of Troilus is not uniformly positive. No, no, I agree with you. I would say. And, and so I agree with you that Cressida's reaction to Diomedes is a bit perplexing, you know, unless you are really taking the Cressida is fickle and untrue at face value, which I think you kind of have to for it to make sense. I mean, you could have a super modern reading of, of this where it's basically Cressida is an incredibly dangerous situation, which is true in the text and in the situation as it's portrayed. And she's made her peace with the situation she's in and she's doing what she has to survive. Similarly, you can take some of her lines about not wanting to show excess affection to Troilus while he's trying to woo her as a defense mechanism and her trying to preserve her value in the marriage market where she says, upon my back to defend my belly, upon my wit to defend my wiles, upon my secrecy to defend mine honesty, my mask to defend my beauty, and you to defend all these, and on all these wards I lie at a thousand watches. I think that there's a way in which you can see that she's trying to be practical, but it does feel like there's this rapid turn with Diomedes' entreaties, and it's a little bit shocking, hard to reconcile with the, the reading I was putting forward. However, I don't think the reading that I was making earlier is necessarily completely absent in the text either. For one thing, I think that there's a tremendous amount of cynicism from many of the characters involved. I mean, the most obvious example is Thersides, who you know, we'll walk onto stage and basically say, we're fighting over cuckoldry and whores, I believe is what he actually says at one point, literally in the text. And he's not entirely wrong considering how much of the conversation revolves around these things. I think it's a little harsh on Cressida and potentially Helen, though Helen's not very sympathetic here. But I, I guess there's enough cynicism in the play and there's enough recognition of the practical realities of war that I also don't think that this is meant to be a tragedy in the sense of a lot of Greek myths where it's all read as like, you're meant to take it at face value and you're meant to take it seriously. I think you're meant to see it as a tragedy, but it's a tragedy that they're all in this situation in general. Let me... Not that Troilus is betrayed by Cressida. I don't think you're really supposed to feel bad for Troilus and all of this. Let me key on to something you just said, Will, because I, I think you made reference to the play 
being very frank about the practicalities of war. And I think actually, maybe that does move in the direction of answering the question, right, of trying to reconcile how the story of Troilus and Cressida fits thematically into this play. Because to your point, right, I think a lot of what you see with, I would say directly with Cressida and indirectly with Troilus, and I'll expound on that a bit more in a minute, is about the practicalities of romance, right? And we touched a little bit on this when we did As You Like It, but I think this play is much more cynical and direct about this, where, right, you you use the term the marriage market for Cressida, and I do think that that's true, where we see a lot with Cressida of her talking in very naked and frank terms about the strategies that she has to pursue to get what she wants and not be abandoned. She says, words, vows, gifts, tears, and love's full sacrifice he offers in another's enterprise, but more in Troilus thousandfold I see than in the glass of Pander's praise may be. Yet hold I off, women are angels wooing, things won are done, joy's soul lies in the doing. That she beloved knows not this, men prize the thing ungained more than it is. That she was never yet that ever knew, love got so sweet as when desire did sue. Therefore this maxim out of love I teach, Achievement is command, ungained beseech. Then, though my heart's content from love doth bear, nothing of that shall from mine eyes appear. Appear, of course, but appear for the rhyme. And I guess in that light, I do see a connection, right? Because it feels like a lot of what's happening with Cressida is not, maybe not that her feelings about Troilus aren't sincere or that her declared feelings about Troilus aren't sincere, but she does take a very practical view of how she's going to pursue that and what it's going to mean to her. And that does feel like it fits in with the play's attitude towards what's happening in the war, both in terms of the origins of the war, like where there's all these conversations about what is the war really about. It's about cuckold and whores. And then also in the execution of the war, which I think is most poignantly, if there's anything in this play, sorry, if there's anything in this play that can really be called poignant, uh, most poignantly expressed in the death of Hector, where he, after having clearly been the closest thing the play has to a symbol of honor, is very dishonorably killed by mm-hmm. Achilles. So I, I do, I do see some relation there. I don't know. What do you think? I, so I, I think the character of Troilus is actually very useful to explore this in a way, because he is somebody who is in love with the idea of Cressida, perhaps more than he actually loves Cressida. And in the same sense, that's his attitude towards honor, I think, as well, and towards war as a general matter. And I I think you can see this in other characters as well. You don't actually need to turn to Thersides to get the more practical, pragmatic view of the situation. I mean, you can look at Ulysses, right, who is eager to win the war and go home, and he in contrast to, say, Achilles, is willing to use trickery and stratagem to achieve his ends. He's not really interested in going up mano a mano against Hector uh, himself, and he knows that vainglorious louts like Ajax probably aren't going to get the job done either. He recognizes the need to have people that believe these things and believe in honor and are pursuing it, but there's a difference between being attached to that and actually winning the battle that they're Mm -hmm. in. 
And of course, I mean, I think all of that becomes nakedly clear when, as you just said, Achilles and his Myrmidons brutally murder Hector unarmed on the battlefield. Uh, So I think that there's a lot going on here between what people profess to value and consider to be honorable and what they actually do. I mean, Troilus's speech about Helen to his own family and why the war was worthwhile when everybody else except for Helen in Paris is saying, we've been doing this for seven years? Like, this is crazy. So many people have died. We've wasted so much money. They even literally talk about the amount of money they've wasted funding the war. And we're not making any progress. And this is all because of vanity and Helen. And Troilus makes a big speech about how, well, it's actually about the sacred honor of the Trojan people and Helen's beauty is part of that and we need to stand for her. But the play seems to suggest that uh, that's a bunch of nonsense. This this was a weird moment for me too, because in that scene, right, we have a, a long, maybe multiple long speeches by Hector talking about how they really should let Helen go and how this is not really worth doing. And then at the very end of, of the last one of those speeches, he just throws in, but yeah, you've convinced me we have to fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is sort of like the Cressida speech that you were referencing earlier uh, with her turning towards Diomedes sort of being inconstant. It feels like it's like a missed beat in the dramatic arc of the play that we both think we're reading or think we should be reading, or maybe I just think I should be reading it. But no, no, I think that's true. It feels like there's a tension. Look, I think this will, I think we'll probably come back to this when we get to the rankings. And, and I, I know we want to talk a little bit at a little bit greater length on this one in that context and what's working and not working. So not, you know, not to spoil that conversation too much, but I do think that that is a characteristic of this play where it feels like, there is a tension between what Shakespeare needs his characters to do narratively for the plot to advance and what he needs them to represent and say thematically. And I, and I wonder if that's part of the problem. But re- regardless of that, I, I think we'll get deeper into that later on. Since you brought up that scene, can we just switch to... I, I think that makes a logical transition point, Will, to talk about what I think is the A plot of the play. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I really wanted to talk about this a, a little bit in an entertainment corner context, but, but also tackling some of what's happening in the play, which is this, like, obviously we've seen Shakespeare appropriating other sources before, right? In fact, I think almost, almost every play is based on another source. I think maybe mm-hmm. there's two that are truly original. But this is the only play that we've read that is based on something that is really famous. (laughs) And now look, obviously, you know, in Shakespeare's time, other things were more or less famous. Regardless, like the Iliad is one of the big ones in the way that we talked about Hamlet being the big Mm -hmm. one, right? Mm -hmm. So this really is Shakespeare doing his take on another great writer's work. And... That was something that was really at the top of my mind as I was reading this play because I actually couldn't quite tell. I think reading the play without having a great familiarity with the Iliad, it's easy to feel like this play is very subversive and is challenging a lot of what the Iliad is about. But I think, as I've referenced before, you know, I, I listened to the Iliad again recently, and there are certain ways in which this play feels like it is 
yes, is very much at odds with Homer's work thematically, but in other ways feels like it's actually very much advancing some of the same points that Homer's making. Do you have any thoughts about Shakespeare's relationship with the earlier texts? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. So you, you referenced the A plot, which is the war, more or less, and kind of the traditional bit from the Iliad that he's drawing on. The Troilus and Cressida plot line is actually from the medieval era, and I think Chaucer wrote up a version of it. Um, I don't believe that it's in the Iliad at all, uh, and it's sort of a later invention or extrapolation, which is kind of interesting in its own right that he's smashing together these two different plot lines quite explicitly from different sources. But I guess with the Iliad, I do think that he is deconstructing and breaking down aspects of the story in the Iliad in a way that might not be entirely present in the Iliad itself. It's been a while since I've read it. But the thing that keeps jumping out to me, having read the Iliad and just being familiar with Homer and that sort of style and just the, the legends in general... It's always been very abundantly clear to me since I first came across this story that Achilles was thirsty for glory to the point of overweening obnoxiousness and that he was very fickle and that Odysseus was a clever and somewhat duplicitous man who was willing to do whatever it took to win the war and get home, even if it would be seen as dishonorable. And that Helen wasn't exactly entirely dragged along against her will back mm-hmm. to Troy. Like, all of those things are present in the Homeric legend. Uh, so to give Homer his due, uh, as if he needs me or you to do that for him, there's a lot of complexity in the original poems and a lot of characterization. You don't necessarily get the interiority of all of these people in the same way you would in a modern novel, but you see their behavior and it all, I think, would have sat, you know, somewhat uncomfortably in in the sense of a, a Greek tragedy when you consumed it, when you were sitting by the fire listening to somebody recite. And certainly when you're when you're reading this play, you get all of that. I just think it's even more explicit in some ways about drawing these things out. And obviously Achilles kills Hector in battle and in the poem and I think parades his body. Does he parade his body around the... Yes, he ties his body to his chariot and drives around Troy eight times or something like that. Right. So, I mean, that's He not glories good, in the death. Yeah, it's not a good look, but it's like considerably better than stabbing Hector unarmed with his pack of Myrmidons uh, alongside him, you know, doing the killing, basically. So in that sense, it feels like it's turning it up to 11 on some of the things that are in the Iliad. That's my Yeah, I mean, what I would say about it, it feels like some of the plot outlines and the characterizations that you're talking about are very much in continuity with Homer, right? Where, like, I think, you can tell me if you disagree, I think it's clear that Hector, in the Iliad... Hector, despite being the primary antagonist, is also the most straightforwardly noble and attractive character in the epic. And I think for all that Hector makes some, I think, questionable decisions here, really does seem like he remains the most honorable character in this play, too, basically. Achilles is prideful in the Iliad, and he's prideful here. Right. Mm-hmm. The difference there are, and then, look, there are definitely some differences in characterization. I think Ajax being the most obvious one. Ulysses is, I, I don't know. I, I think basically is fulfilling the same function in, in both. 
where I see the discontinuity is that in the Iliad, right, the the need for Hector to be the most attractive and noble character comes in that like that he needs to die. Achilles needs to behave in this very prideful and overweening way towards his body. And then only then have the realization that the fact that Hector was his enemy didn't negate Hector's essential humanity. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, mm-hmm. it has this ending note of grace that is about like the return of Hector's body and the realization that, you know, your enemy may nonetheless be as noble as you in their own context, right? There is no note of grace in this play. <laughs> No, no. To, to put it lightly. And that is where I think the tone is very different. Yeah, yeah. This is not an easy read. It's a very dense play in terms of language. And thematically, it's it's definitely one of the darker plays I think we've read in some respects. Or most cynical plays. It's not a, it's not an easy read in either respect. And no. it's, it's pretty bleak, I think. For, for sure. I actually think, Will, you made a really great point when we were talking about Charles and Cressa that actually does relate strongly to this question of Shakespeare reappropriating the Homeric myth. The This thing about Cressida, and, and it may, I think in my mind, it may actually give more credence to the reading of the story of Cressida being about her reacting to her situation and trying to make the best of the situation that she's in, which mm-hmm. is the Iliad actually begins and is kicked off by this conflict between Agamemnon and Achilles about the possession of a slave girl. Yes. And, and so, you know, the whole storyline about Achilles withdrawing from the battle and not engaging with the war, you know, which is the action that sets the entire plot of the Iliad on spooling, which takes place over the course of like 10 days of the war. Mm-hmm. The actual thing that sets that off is that basically Agamemnon has to give up some captive because the gods, you know, are frowning on him for having taken this woman captive. And he's petulant. And so because Achilles speaks against him saying that he should let this woman go, who's Mm. like the daughter of a priest of Zeus or something, Agamemnon says, okay, I'm going to give her up. But Achilles, I'm taking this slave girl of yours. Right. So in fact, the entire starting point of the Iliad is about this possession this battle of possession and the pride that's involved in that battle of possession around these women that they're fighting over, mm. which I, th- I think is interesting to think about in the context of Troilus and Cressida and what's happening with Cressida and Diomedes, one, but also I think goes to a more general point that I wanted to get to, which was the use of these legends and the way that these kinds of legends, and I think Shakespeare's own plays have now kind of entered this type of situation, right? Where you can pull out these different threads from these legends and they're so familiar and there's no one version that's truly the full or correct version. It's more about there are these tropes and characters and situations that you can draw on to find new things to talk about. So I, I guess I'm wondering, well, like, do, do you think that that's working here? Like, do you think that this play is successful in that regard? Do you think, I think, um, do you think it's I, departing too yeah. far? I think that there's a, the makings of a truly great play in this one, but I think it's a little too messy and there are too many offbeats 
certainly for a modern audience, but probably for an audience in Shakespeare's day. And based on what little I've read about this one, it was not particularly popular play. I don't think that there are many records of it being performed, even in the 17th century, you know, contemporaneously or, or thereafter. Harold Bloom contends that it was never performed before the 20th century, which... If true, is an amazing statistic. Yeah, if true is, is quite amazing. I, I read a little bit about it possibly being performed in small settings. I mean, it's a very it's a very heady and philosophical play at a couple of points too, which which we'll talk about. And I and I read about some performances possibly taking place in Ireland, but that's about it. So there's a sense in which that this is not a play that sits well with people. And in fact, it's classified as one of the problem plays, quote unquote, which is a literary criticism term. It essentially just means that it's very hard to class this one as a comedy or a tragedy. The way we've talked about it, we've emphasized the tragic elements, but there are aspects of it that are rather funny, both in the camp scenes and in the sort of love plot and just the absurdity of these characters, mostly people like Troilus declaiming and then being directly contradicted by the way life is actually going on around them. People like Thersites just brutally making fun of Ajax and Achilles and Patroclus and the rest of everybody. There's a lot of moments that are laugh lines, but it doesn't exactly feel like a comedy. I mean, Merchant of Venice, right? We talked about how there's some genre blending there, but that was mm -hmm. definitely intended, I think, first and foremost, as a comedy. That's the way it resolves itself, despite seriousness brought to characters like Shylock. This one is a lot messier in almost every single respect. It's long, it's complicated, there's a lot of very highfalutin rhetoric. There's also a lot of low sex humor in it. There's some really uncomfortable scenes, which I think Shakespeare intends to feel quite uncomfortable between men mm -hmm. and women and threats of sexual violence and other things of that nature. There's also discussions of honor, sometimes from characters that are honorable, but most of the time by characters that are not honorable. Lots of lamentations of war and perfidy. It's not an overwhelmingly pleasant or easy read. Well, and I think with many of those things, it's not just like protestations of honor from characters who are basically not honorable, right? It's questioning the very idea of honor and questioning the very idea of love, right? I, I don't want to, I don't think it's just about honor here. Like it feels like, what's happening is that Shakespeare is undercutting, very deliberately undercutting these tropes that are the things that these plays are often about and taking seriously. Yes, which is kind of a recurring pattern for him, but I feel like he does turn up the intensity of it to new degrees. I think that Falstaff was a pretty jolly sort when he was talking about can honor set a leg. May not have been an admirable sort, but there's nothing quite as in your face. Like, Falstaff was a hedonist. Thersites is actually a straight-up cynic, and many of the other characters are cynics in their behavior, if not in their self-conceptions and the way they talk. But Thersites is 
straight up just declaiming against the idea of honor in war at all and discussing in pretty profane and lewd terms like what the war is actually about. That's something that the noble characters sort of broach, but they do it in this discourse that feels rather remote from the circumstances that they're in. They all know it's kind of a bad idea, and Thersides is obnoxious, but he's the type of person to take it to the next level. To make it explicit. Exactly, and, and assert that it's actually, no, it's actually meaningless. Uh, stop trying to make this make sense in your conception of, of honor, glory, warfare, love. Because it's not exactly as if Helen and Menelaus had a, had a great relationship beforehand. You know, mm-hmm. this is, and to the degree that it's about his honor being stained, it's really about one man having his, his wife or his girl run out on him. And feeling the need to recapture her, but really just sort of right this wrong. And it's like, that's a, lot, a lot of people die in the Trojan War for this to be the cause. And you really get that stamped over and over again by characters. Well, let me um, ask you, like, reading the play, you, you get the sense of a war that started like, this is a great idea, war is going to be over by Christmas. Exactly. <laughs> and exactly. now they've been fighting for seven years. And they're really starting to question whether it was worth it or not. And I just want to ask you, does this feel true to you that at this point it has become more about the sunk cost of the time they've already spent in the war? You know, that they can't let it go for nothing? Yeah, yeah. I definitely think that there's a sunk cost fallacy going on here. Now... I think the difference to some of our contemporary wars, thinking of the War of Afghanistan in particular, uh, you know, the Trojan War, the thing about Ulysses is he sees a way to win. He has a theory for how they can win the actual conflict and turn it around and salvage their honor and maybe loot the city. That, I think, is is a sort of a key difference in his case. I think in a lot of contemporary conflicts, you end up having a similar conversation which focuses on well we can't leave because there are various consequences that may come about but also we've lost so many people in this uh, horrible situation we have to ensure that something comes out of it that's positive or good and i think in this case it's funny because the people may have gone to war thinking it was a good idea but many of the characters cast doubt on whether that was in fact the case at the outset. It's not a situation in which people are arriving and saying, you know, rational cost-benefit analysis, Helen might have been worth like 10,000 Greeks, but like not 20,000 Greeks. That's not that kind of conversation. You're getting people really questioning, I think, the overall value of the enterprise because they're losing years of their lives. And in the case of the Trojans, not just lives, but they talk explicitly about the money and the treasury being barren because of having to pay for the the war endlessly. And they can't escape. But you brought up, well, you brought up Ulysses. So I I think that's a good moment here to to go to our, our final topic, which was we just wanted to quickly address what's going on with Ulysses in this play. And, and specifically, Ulysses has maybe three or four quite long speeches here in which he expounds 
on a couple of topics, but I, I think basically expounds on his idea of a political philosophy. And I would say that that political philosophy, and, and I don't know how fully we can trust it because I think it's pretty clear that Ulysses is also a manipulator and is going to say whatever he needs to say to get what he wants mm-hmm. and to make happen what he wants to have happen. Nonetheless, I, I think the image that emerges or the sense that emerges, as, as you put it in the plot summary, is he has this idea about why the Trojans have failed to win the war. And, you know, let, let's, just, uh, let, we'll, let's just play this full speech. Troy, yet upon his bases, had been down and the great Hector's sword had lacked a master but for these instances. The specialty of rule hath been neglected. And look how many Grecian tents do stand hollow upon this plain. So many hollow factions. When that the general is not like the hive to whom all the forages shall repair, what honey is expected? Degree being visited, the unworthiest shows as fairly in the mask. The heavens themselves, the planets, and this center observe degree, priority, and place, insisture, course, proportion, season, form, office, and custom in all line of order. And therefore is the glorious planet soul, in noble eminence enthroned and sphered amidst the other whose meds the lie, corrects the ill aspects of planets evil, and posts like the commandment of a king, sans check to good and bad. But when the planets in evil mixture to disorder wander, what plagues, what portents, what mutiny, what raging of the sea, shaking of the earth, commotion in the winds, Frights, changes, horrors, divert and crack, rend and deracinate the unity and married calm of states quite from their fixture. Oh, when degree is shaked, which is the latter of all high designs, the enterprise is sick. How could communities, degrees in schools and brotherhoods and cities, peaceful commerce from dividable shores, the primogeneity of due birth, prerogative of age, crowns, scepters, laurels, but by degree stand in authentic place. Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. Each thing meets in mere oppugnancy. The bounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shores and make a sop of all this solid globe. Strength should be the lord of imbecility and the rude son should strike his father dead. Force should be right, or rather, Right and wrong, between whose endless jar justice resides, should lose their names, and so should justice too. Then everything include itself in power, power into will, will into appetite, and appetite, a universal wolf, must make perforce a universal prey, and last eat up himself. Great Agamemnon, this chaos, when degree is suffocate, follows the choking, in this neglection of degree, it is that by a pace goes backward with a purpose it hath to climb. The general's disdain by him one step below, he by the next, the next by him beneath. So every step, example by first pace that is sick of his superior, grows to an envious fever of pale and bloodless emulation. And tis this fever that keeps Troy on foot, not her own sinews. To end a tale of length, Troy in our weakness stands, 
not in her strength. Essentially, he's arguing that the Greeks have failed to maintain proper discipline, have one, have divided in them amongst themselves, but two, also are not properly organized and do not have enough respect for authority to effectively combat the Trojans. And if they resolve that issue amongst their own ranks, then defeating the Trojans would be easy. And I think when I put it like that, it sounds fairly anodyne. I think the reason that this philosophy that he expounds might be challenging is that he seems to basically be endorsing an idea of fairly fixed social hierarchies that need to be observed and not really moved between. So, Will, give me your thoughts on the political philosophy of Ulysses. So in the context of an armed encampment, I'm actually quite comfortable with it, to be perfectly honest with you. I see it as sort of a, a prerequisite to them being organized enough to capitalize on whatever leads to a breakthrough. And I think that this is a difference between maybe civilian life and military life. I mean, I think you can overdo how you enforce hierarchy and privilege in in the military context as well. But I, I do think that good order and discipline and a certain hierarchical order is necessary in this type of situation in particular. So I actually have a fair degree of sympathy for what Ulysses is explicitly talking about here. I think if you were to extrapolate it to society at large. I mean, there's a sense in which aspects of it are true, but there's also senses in which in a modern world, it doesn't really hold by turn. So I I, I do think that there's like a category difference, though I would point out Ulysses is in point of fact wrong that their inability to win is solely about good order and discipline, which is why he has to come up with the Trojan horse later. He has to develop a strategy that gets them Mm -hmm. inside the walls of Troy. So I think good order and discipline is necessary for them to take advantage of any strategy that they come up with, and it might help them win by attrition if they just are able to hold together and fight more fiercely than the other side. But, you know, I think his theory is a little bit bit wrong in terms of why they're losing at this stage. But he's definitely right that this is pure poison and actually trying to run a war. Well, do you disagree with his observation about Achilles and the effect that Achilles' behavior is likely to have on the rank and file? I actually agree that it does have the effect that he discusses. I mean, he seeds the ground a little bit so that there's a turning of opinion on Achilles. They're kind of disgusted by him sitting in his tent and just brooding and being generally annoying. Well, not just not just being generally annoying, but going out of his way seemingly to mock the other yes. Greek commanders. Yes, he's mocking his peers and colleagues, he's withholding his troops from the battle, and even in people that are willing to fight, like Ajax, there's a general lack of faith in the enterprise. And I think that is pure poison, when you're trying to get together people that are maybe involved in an enterprise like this for a variety of different reasons— But you Mm -hmm. need to at least give them a a vision of going forward. And if you have people actively undermining that constantly and not just in a standard we're going to complain kind of way about the travails of daily life and the annoyance that officers create. I mean, Achilles is flouting the rules in ways that make it very hard for other people to take this grinding war seriously at all. Like, why bother if your greatest fighter is just sort of taken back? It was interesting. This this will seem like a very a very low 
comparison to reading the obscure Shakespeare play Troilus and Cressida. But I couldn't help but think on reading this about professional sports teams Mm -hmm. and the sense on all these teams that the best player always needs to be the leader of the clubhouse Mm -hmm. among the players, like needing to be a voice amongst the players buying into the system and leading by example to do things. And and it's that's always been like uh, a trope that I have a little bit pushed back against in just psychologically. I, I can't say this is a subject that I feel like comes up in conversation that frequently, but definitely something that I've thought about in the past and been like, well, like, why is it that the best player also needs to be the leader mm-hmm. of the other players, right? And I feel like this play is kind of hitting on that idea, right? Which is that Achilles is the most famous and the most renowned and rightly or wrongly is a figure of fascination and veneration amongst the other Greeks because of his prowess in the battlefield, right? Mm-hmm. So when the guy who gets the most attention and gets the most adulation and is the most admired for that is not on the same page as the people running the effort, then why should the poor bastard who's going to be in the vanguard of the shield wall, who's probably going to get killed, be on that page themselves. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is a major challenge in all sorts of military organizations, but all types of team organizations in general, right? And I think you want to have somebody that embodies some form of excellence putting skin in the game alongside you. And in this case, Achilles is a warrior. What he does is lead men into battle. There are other types of effective military leaders as well. But if you're a hoplite, you know, fighting on the beaches of Troy, you're going to want to know that the best warrior and his Myrmidons, who are, you know, the shock troops, are committed and are going to be there fighting. Because otherwise, right, what's the point? You can't necessarily see the way forward through that. There's a time and a place for different kinds of leadership, but this is actually one where I think having somebody that's 100% committed and very good at fighting and killing people is necessary and you want to mm-hmm. have them not basically casting doubt on the entire effort i'm, I'm not going to disagree with you I, I think basically i'm surprised will i thought we were going to disagree i think i thought we were going to have some disagreement on this topic but um, well i think when i think about society at large i think it becomes more a more complex question but in reading the speech and thinking about it a bit i really do feel like he makes extrapolations about wider society as well in it of course and there's senses in which that's true, maybe in, a, in the broadest sense. But, you know, it's a little bit different, I think, depending on the context you're in and the time, place, and manner in which you're expected to act. And I think that's what should be. The context actually matters a lot more to me here than almost mm-hmm. anything else. Because I, I think Ulysses is trying to get back to Penelope and good old Ithaca. And the way to do that is to win the war. And how are they going to win the war? Well, you're definitely not going to win the war if you have your best people joking about the entire thing and treating it as if it's not a serious endeavor that they're all embarked on and that there are people that are going to die doing it. I mean, you don't want to be the man who's going to ask the last man in the losing Trojan War to die outside mm-hmm. of Ilium, <laughs> you know, to paraphrase that quote from Vietnam era from John Kerry of all people. But I think that there's an element of truth there where it's like, look, you owe it if you're leading this type of thing 
you know, this type of war, you owe it to the people that are going to be doing the fighting and dying to be committed and to be 100% in to take some of that risk. And that means the people that are in positions of authority have special responsibilities to take on and to model for others and to learn from those below them as well, of course. Like, it's a two-way thing. But Achilles' bad behavior cascades and, and it does bad things for the Greeks. But James, to take a step back here, how do you rank this one? And where do you think this fits in in the overall body of work? And do you think it really succeeds? Or does it fail? Well, I, I, I think this is something we're probably going to agree on. This is a really hard one for me. At the end of the day, I think my final analysis is the play doesn't really work. But there's a lot of interesting things going on. Mm-hmm. And it's in dialogue with some of the other plays in a sort of heightened way. Like it, it mm-hmm. feels to me, this this might be the most savagely cynical and pessimistic play of all of Shakespeare's plays that we've read, I think. Mm-hmm. And that's very strange to me because I feel like we had the conversation several times in the early plays about how Shakespeare was much more pessimistic than we were expecting or, or, mm-hmm. or knew about, right? Uh, you know, and I think it started with our conversation about those early comedies and also about Titus Andronicus, about how kind of misanthropic those plays were. And then I think we basically decided once we moved into the Henry VI plays that actually this is a wider kind of pessimism and cynicism. Mm-hmm. But it really feels like that has faded a little bit. I mean, even, even a play like Hamlet which reads like it's dealing with some deep anguish, you know, Mm -hmm. some deep sadness. You know, there's a great melancholy at the heart of Hamlet. It doesn't have this kind of darkness to it. And it is dark, but it's not this kind of darkness. You know, it's not this kind of empty, rank, everything. Yeah. Yeah. No proclamation of virtue or honor can be taken seriously. And if it can be taken seriously it should be mocked, right? That's sort of the attitude of this play. Yes. And that is, I think, really difficult to stomach. And yet at the same time, it's handling a lot of those issues in a much more sophisticated and interesting way, I think, than some of those earlier plays. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, for me, basically, the question comes down to how do I place it in relation to Henry VI Part Two. And the reason I say that is because this play reminds me strongly of Henry VI Part II in this, you know, scheming coterie of nobles. There's like, I think Hector is the one character in this play who seems basically honorable, but it's not unambiguous in the way that I think the portrayal of Humphrey in Henry VI Part II is pretty unambiguously positive, right? I think... With the Hector character, you get a lot of a sense of, is he kind of stupid, <laughs> right? Yeah. There's, an, there's a sense that his commitment to this idea of honor is trapping him and is basically foolish. And similarly, you know, you see that you brought up Falstaff earlier, and I think this play is getting into some of the oppositionality of the Henry IV plays, Henry IV part one at least, of the Hotspur-Falstaff dichotomy, But what we saw in that play, I think, had a much more positive... Mm. I I don't know if positive is the right word, but you saw both the negatives and the positives of those two characters, right? You saw both the cynicism 
and the nihilism of Falstaff and the way that it sort of allowed him to behave in very bad ways. But you also saw the humanism of it, right? Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, you saw the way that Hotspur's commitment to his idea of honor could create great pain and great damage to people who he's with and can lead him to make bad decisions, you also saw how it led to moments of genuine heroism and how he was really committed to this idea and how he was committed to something that had real importance to him. That's not present in this play. In this play, you're not getting any upside. You're, not, you're only getting the downside, I think, to both those views of the world. Sorry, that was a very, very, very long reaction. <laughs> yes. But it's, so it, it's sort of what I've been thinking about with the play. Anyway, yeah. to answer the question, I feel like it does all come down to how I feel about it in relation to Henry VI Part Two, And I think ultimately, though, I think this play is more sophisticated and more interesting mm -hmm. with like a capital M and a capital I. I just don't think it's as successful as Henry VI Two. And so once I acknowledge that, I think probably I place it, I probably place it below Henry the Fourth to above as you like it below Henry the Fourth Part Two. Ooh, interesting. What do you think? Okay, so and I, I apologize think, for going way off the rails in my answer. That's that, that's that's quite all right. It was it was it was very interesting. Personally, I think that this is a fascinating failure in the sense that there's a lot of great stuff in here. I think that this could be a totally brutal scabrous satire and takedown of an entire uh, way of thinking about war and love and people's misconceptions and fantasies being punctured. And at times it is that, but there is an unevenness in tone. And I think the plot structure doesn't entirely hold together the unity of the two plots in a pleasing balance. Mm -hmm. And additionally, I think it's this is partially just a modern sensibility thing, but I think it's harder to read than I would typically like in many of the plays that we've read. I mean, it takes I you time to get I think into, it's, but... I think it's really challenging. It's really dense and challenging. And all of Shakespeare, right, you kind of expect the first couple scenes, it's going to take a little while to get into the rhythm of the language. This play I did find to be particularly challenging. Yeah, I had a hard time getting through this one, even though I recognized that the themes and ideas and some of the speeches were intensely interesting and were saying and introducing powerful ideas. I just don't think it quite hangs together. However, I have some sympathy for interesting failures. I think you can learn a lot from them. And with a good editor, I actually think this could be a great play and a very interesting feature film if uh, anybody out there is listening so in that note it's in the bottom half for me but it's sort of in the middle of the pack for all of that so i actually put it below henry the sixth parts one and two i put it below love's labor's lost but i put it above twelfth night as you like it merry wives king john henry the sixth part three titus Two Gentlemen, it still outpaces most of the comedies for me in terms of the ideas and, and discussion that it prompted. And, and some of the writing is obviously quite good. So well, that's where I come out with it. I'm, I'm going to make a slight amendment. I'm actually going to bump it up one spot. I'm going to put it above Henry IV, too. Oh, interesting. That's interesting. I mean, I Henry IV Part Two is not one that I feel very attached to, but it is sort of above 
other plays that I think I like more, but I'm not going to ask for a mea culpa on this episode. So I'm not I, saying it's I mea. A, we're still in the ranking section. It's not a mea culpa. It's it's it's, it's, it's just a modification. It's a modification, but uh, we can we can rescramble. I I need some time to to think through this, and of course we'll need to do an awards episode where we do our favorites at the end of this great enterprise, and we can we can re rank to our heart's delight. But Troilus and Cressida, I put it at number fifteen, so below Henry the Sixth Part One, above Twelfth Night. Uh, my MVP is Ulysses, despite the grossness with Cressida at camp. I think the speech is very powerful that he delivers where he's advising Agamemnon. I think he drives a lot of the action of the play in the main plot concerning the war. I've always liked Ulysses and Odysseus partially because I like the fox-like cleverness of the man, even though it's not always honorable or doesn't always make you admire the guy. And I think that actually holds true in this play, certainly. He's a complicated, modern character. And uh, I enjoyed that. So it's Ulysses' MVP for me. What about for you? I think Ulysses is one of a very few characters that could plausibly be the MVP of this play, but he is not my choice. I'm going to go with Thersites. Will. Uh, that's a, a good one, and he was on my, my very short list. Uh, <laughs> Thersites is savage and unsparing in his criticism of the war and of the people around him. I think he is... Frankly, a very unattractive character, but I think in this, in the context of this play, he's both very funny, and he offers a lot of thematic richness to it. So mm. that's that's what I'm going with. Yeah, that makes sense. So James, do you have a recommendation for us this week? Uh, Will I do, and it is in fact on the theme of, of this play. I have referenced in the past that I recently listened to the Iliad, and since we just read the play Troilus and Cresta, I'm going to recommend that other people also listen to the Iliad. I listened to, I believe it was the Fitzgerald translation and it was read by mm. the actor Dan Stevens. And I have to say, I was really shocked by how accessible I found it and how much I enjoyed it. It is, it's not for nothing that it's one of the most famous works of literature in the West. And I think both well worth listening to, yes, for the intellectual, you know, for knowing it, but also for enjoying it and for accessing this essential part of literary history. So what's the recommendation one more time? It is the audiobook of the Iliad read by Dan Stevens and written allegedly by Homer. Wonderful. And that's our show. Next time on Bardflies, a comedy that... I know literally nothing about with Measure for Measure. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.